morning. It's good to see all of you and uh, certainly enjoy the worship today. Uh, felt ministered to already. Appreciate all that Joe and Cynthia and uh, the praise team does week in and week out to uh, lead us and prepare us for um, dealing with our Father. And so I'd like you to uh, turn in uh, your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, <clears throat> I'd like us to look at um, a pretty familiar set of verses here, uh, Jesus' instruction on prayer. So let me read from Matthew 7, starting in verse 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. Um, back in seminary days for me, which is going back a few years now, <laughs> back in the 80s, uh, I was in Dallas, Dallas, Texas, and um, uh, I've been in seminary for four years. I crammed four years of seminary into five. Um, and uh, on this, it was my fourth year, start of my fourth year. And uh, actually, it was the start of the fifth year. That was it. Uh, and it's September, and it was a Saturday, and I had never been to see the Dallas Cowboys play in person in those four years. And uh, it, this was a Saturday game. It was actually preseason, and uh, they were playing Houston, Houston Oilers in those days. And uh, my roommate and I thought, man, you know, it's Saturday, and uh, it's one of the few games that is not sold out. Let's see if we could go uh, uh, play. And uh, so we called to see what the, how much the, uh, the tickets were, and they were just way too much for our poor seminary students' budget. And so we were kind of bummed out about it. And, and uh, that day I had to work. I worked in North Dallas. And, and uh, during the day as I'm, I'm working there, I'm just kind of bummed out about the game. Boy, you know, I just would love to go to that Cowboys game. And uh, um, it's around 5 o'clock and uh, work is done. And I get in my car and I get on the LBJ freeway, which is the big freeway that circles all of Dallas. And, and uh, I'm driving down the road and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars. You know, it's a very, very busy freeway, four lanes across. And I'm driving down and, and uh, I said, you know, Lord, it sure would be nice to be able to go to that cowboy game tonight. And immediately, a horn starts honking. And, you know, I'm, I'm driving down, hundreds of cars are going, a horn is honking. And it keeps on honking. I finally look over and here's this lady. She's leaning out of this pickup truck. She's waving at me and hollering something at me. Now, 
So I rolled my window down and I said, what? She goes, do you want some tickets? We're driving down this highway. And I said, what? Do you want some tickets? I said, to the cowboys? She said, yes. We can't go. We want to give them to somebody. Do you want them or not? I said, okay. So driving down 55 miles an hour down the highway, I get over as close as I can. She's reaching out with the tickets and she passes over two tickets to me to the Dallas Cowboys. I, I'm not believing it. I go home, my, my roommate, who is a seminary student, does not believe what that, that's how I got those tickets. But God, I'm as true, that's what happened. I, you know, here I was, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really serious. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of faith uh, behind that. But in that moment, God decided, I guess, to let me go to see his team, right? That looking down on that old stadium with the hole in the roof so God could watch his team. And that was, that's my one and only time to see the Cowboys play. And they beat the Houston Oilers uh, there. I want to share another story um, about prayer that goes very differently. Um, there was a girl in my home church. Her name was Chris, and uh, she had uh, gone to Bible college, loved God with all of her heart, family, very solid family, committed to the Lord. And, and um, um, she learned when she was 22 that she had Lou Gehrig's disease, and the doctors had given her six months to live. Her family, who uh, very much believed in prayer, very much believed in God's ability to heal, uh, began to fervently pray. They enlisted our church to pray. They enlisted other churches to pray. Hundreds and hundreds of people were praying, fasting. Great tears, great fervency, seeking God's face continually. And nevertheless, six months later, she died. So how is it that a young man who hasn't even been thinking about this for very long and in the grand scheme of things is asking for something that really isn't of much consequence at all, really capricious, really in his and, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot of faith that was exercised there. How is it that God will, he asks, and, and in that moment, he receives that gift. And then you have a family who is earnestly seeking God, loves him with all their heart. Their daughter, who's preparing for a lifetime of ministry to serve him. And they believe in God. They believe in the power of prayer. They, they believe in his love. They believe that he is able. Fasting. And their request is not, not granted. How 
How often have we been confused and perhaps battled disillusionment with the Bible's exhortation for us to pray with the promises of God to answer? And yet the response of God to the prayers of his children can oftentimes confound us. We hear of God answering prayer in others' lives, yet perhaps in our case, he continues to remain silent and heaven's doors are are closed or they seem closed. And the response of heaven can sometimes seem to be as if there's some big wheel of fortune that's being spun. The prayers go up and the wheel is spun and we don't seem to understand uh, how the exhortations to pray, the, the promises to prayer, relate to our experiences as we seek God. And we can be tempted as God's children that it, uh, to lose heart, to faint, to grow weary in our trust, in our asking, in our seeking, and in our knocking. So was Jesus disingenuous when he said this? Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount? No. A thousand times, no. We can find great comfort, great hope, great reassurance in these precious statements of Jesus regarding our prayer, even in our confusion when God doesn't seem to respond as we desire. So I'd like us just to look a little bit closer at these verses here this morning. So, Jesus' instruction is very clear. His urging is very clear, right? Ask, and it's in, it's in, the verb is in the continuous um, uh, um, uh, tense. It's continuous action. Ask and keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking. Knock, keep on knocking. And then the promises are very, very, very clear. He says, for everyone who asks, receives, and to him who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. And then Jesus takes pains to reinforce it. He says it again. Uh, how can this family that prayed say, Jesus, can you be serious here? How does this family who lost their daughter accept this? Is Jesus no better than a lot of our politicians these days who make a lot of big promises and can't deliver? Is he spinning an image of God and a prayer that we would all love to believe is true, but the hard facts of experience seem to run counter to what he's saying? Is he painting some pie-in-the-sky picture of God having this heavenly prayer answering dispensary and Jesus really saying just place your order and voila you get what you have asked is that what he's saying but life reminds us that that can't be true there is no celestial prayer answering dispensary where we place our order and and get whatever we ask for God is not a genie in a bottle that we rub and poof, we get our wishes. Jesus is not saying that. Now, how do we know? Because the promise that he made 
was not made in terms of an impersonal arrangement. Jesus is not Amazon.com. You put in your order and bang, you get it. It's on your doorstep. That's not it. It's not an impersonal arrangement. Jesus is describing prayer in terms of a very personal relationship. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Or which one of you, if his, note this, if his son... If his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, son, father, children? It's a relationship. Jesus frames his exhortation and promise about prayer in terms of relationship between a father and his children. God is presented as your father who is in heaven. And Jesus is directing the exhortation and promise regarding prayer to those who are God's children. Your heavenly father. Now we might assume that just because we're a part of the human race, God being our creator, that we are all God's children. I think there's a song about that, all right, all God's children. But that is not how the Bible explains this personal relationship with God. Ephesians 2 says that we all were dead in our trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2 makes it clear that our default state was one of alienation from God. We're identified as children of wrath because of our sin. The whole reason Jesus came was to rescue us from the wrath our sin deserves by taking that wrath upon himself by his death on the cross and thus pave a way for us to be reconciled to God when we place our faith in him. John chapter 1 Verses 11 and 12 make it clear. He came to his own, Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those he gave the right to become, to become children of God. And so the, the promise that Jesus is extending, he's extending to those who are God's children. And God's children are those who've come to see who Jesus is, who've come to believe that he has come to take on the, the, their trespasses and sins and bore the wrath that they deserve. We were once children of wrath. Now we've been made his children through faith in Jesus. Those are the children of God. But it's also extremely important for us to notice what the focus of Jesus' promise is in our asking and seeking and knocking. And he gives us this explanation in verse 11. Look at verse 11 again. If you then who are evil know how to give, and notice this, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what? What is good to those who ask him? So Jesus Focus in his promise is, is around that. It's, it's based on a relationship, a child to the father, father to the, his, his child. And the, the answer revolves around 
what is good. Good gifts. What is Jesus saying here? This is how I would summarize, summarize it. God's children should always bring what's on their heart to him. That's that continuous action. You have something on your heart. You have a need. Always, always go to your father. And the promise is that God will always respond with what is good for his child. We can take it to the bank. You have something that you need. You have something that you desire. Go to your father and your father will always respond with what is good when we ask him. To put it another way, when God's children ask him for something, if it is good, they will receive it. Jesus urges us, go to your heavenly father with what is on your heart. And he promises God will always respond by giving what is good. Now, why can we believe that it's true? Why can this family who sought God's face, why can this family believe that is true, that what Jesus says here is true? Jesus, I think, points to two reasons in his explanation in verses 9 and 11. And the first one is this, because God is our father. Jesus says we can believe that when we go to God in prayer with our requests, he will always give what is good in response because the God we are asking is our father. And so he, what, what does he do in verses 9 and 10? He, he points to the relationship of a human father to his children, right? So he makes a comparison first with human fathers to the heavenly father, and then he'll draw a contrast. Let's look at the comparison. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? And the expected answer is, of course not. Verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give what is good? Jesus' point, why would you expect God to be any different than human parents? How could we dare imagine that God's love for his children and his desire to give what is good for them could be any less than what a human parent desires and how a human parent loves their child? If you're a parent, you know what kind of heart Jesus is describing here. And it's been a while now, 32 years, but Remembering the day when Rosemary and I learned that we were expecting our daughter, Raquel, and the awesome flood of emotions that went through my mind and heart, learning of that, wonder and amazement, I'm going to be a father, and then sobering realization, I'm going to be a father. This kid is going to be depending on me. And the love, love flooded my heart. Family love, love for this child I haven't yet seen, love for my wife. And the realization that, that God used 
her and I to bring this living being into the world. What, what? There's nothing like it, is there? Learning that God has given you this gift. He's entrusted to you this stewardship, this child. And then the day that uh, Raquel came, uh, we were missionaries. I was raised, we were raising support. Uh, um, the, the word was that, um, you know, we still had some time yet. So Rosemary was very close, but I went an hour and a half away to, to preach in another uh, church. And we find out that, ooh, and it was before we had cell phones in those days. So I'm driving down the highway and stop at a gas station to call to see if she's still okay and uh, get to the church call. Yeah. All right. And go do, go through the service call afterwards. And she's not there. She's at the hospital. I call the hospital and the nurse says, what are you doing down there? You should be here right now. And I'm driving like a maniac down the road saying, God, please, 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 please let me get there in time. You know, and I get there and, and Rosemary is going through all that one has to go through during that time. It was such, you know, the emotions, it's this excitement, there's trepidation, there's, there's just, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's quite an experience, isn't it? Um, ends up being a, an emergency C-section. So we went from just the joy and anticipation to great worry and distress and all of that. And finally through it all, Raquel is there and the doctor's placing her in my arms. And there's this child. And realizing that this, this being, this eternal being has been entrusted to me. And to have that, those little fingers grab my pinky. And her being so helpless, so helpless. And me feeling the weight, the weight of the responsibility to protect her to provide for her, to guide her, to instruct her, to correct her, to prepare her for all that's coming ahead. What a sobering realization, but all of that filled with love. I would lay my life down in a minute for either of my children. That's the love of a parent. That's instinctive to us. It, it, it's natural to us. And Jesus is saying, can you dare imagine that your father's love is any different than that? And that's where he goes to the contrast. That's a comparison. But look at the contrast. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more? Will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who love him? Jesus goes right to the heart of our big limitation as human parents, our sin. Our natures made in the image of God, but marred by sin. Sin has impacted everything, our bodies, our minds, our circumstances. We live in a sin-cursed world. I appreciate how Ben oftentimes summarizes it. This is God's good world ruined by sin, redeemed by the Son, 
being recreated by the Spirit. But it's been ruined. It's been marred. All of life has been impacted by sin. And this father's heart has been impacted by that sin. This father's heart who desires good can, can be distracted by selfish things at times. My kids can come and desire my attention and I might be too busy with church things or ministry things and so forth. There have been many times my children have come to me and needed my loving attention and I was distracted by other things, other worries, or was just plain selfish in what I was focused in on in the moment. My judgment has been marred. I've made mistakes with my kids. To this day, I have regrets for how I've used my times at times with my children, how I react, reacted to their behavior and even advice and direction I gave them. Do I love them? Of course, with all my heart. Did I desire to raise them well and provide what they needed? Yes. Would I lay my life down for them in a moment? But did I make mistakes in their upbringing? Yes, I did. My ability to give what I desire, to give what is good to my kids is limited. Even when my heart is right, my attitude and my outlook are right, my resources are limited. My time is limited, my patience is limited, my wisdom. All are marred by sin's curse. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father who is in heaven? I live in a fallen world. I'm subject to sin's effects of this fallen world. Evil, bad judgment, sinful motives, and the effects of all of that surround me and my family. I have no control over the drunk driver that's barreling down the opposite lane. I have no control over the economy, over dishonest politicians, stock market crashes, hurricanes, cancer. The list goes on and on. Jesus says a human father, as a human father, I know how to give good gifts to my children, but because of sin, my fallenness, and the fallenness of the world that we live in, I don't have the ability to always give what is good. But not so with our Heavenly Father. The Bible is so clear in no uncertain terms, the picture that it paints of God the God who we serve, the God who is our Father, is the sovereign creator of the universe. He does, he does all things according to the pleasure of his goodwill. He's in absolute control. In him we live and move and have our being. Our Father is able. He understands. He loves us with an infinite love. O oh Lord God, behold, you yourself have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. His wisdom is unsearchable. Isaiah, uh, Israel was tempted to think that their situation when they had been, uh, uh, found themselves in slavery and uh, uh, with Babylon, Isaiah 40 says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is inscrutable. These are, these are bedrock doctrines in the church, aren't they? I mean, these are, these are fundamental truths about God. The God we serve, the God we know is a God who's in absolute control. God is in control. He's all wise, all knowing, omniscient. He knows things perfectly. Matthew 6 says that he knows our need before we even ask him, right? So he knows. He understands. Third, though, he loves. He loves us with an everlasting love, Jeremiah often would say, an everlasting love. So those three fundamental truths have to be bedrock foundations that we have to build our lives on when times like this, when we're seeking God and our hearts are breaking and we're confused with the pain, we don't understand it, it's not letting up, we have to keep coming back to that. My father's in control. He can change the situation just like that. This is not beyond his control. My father understands. My father knows. He knows me. He knows my situation. He knows every possible outcome of what I'm asking for. He sees it all down the line, every possible circumstance. He knows what's in my heart. He knows my need before I ask him. He knows what my need really is really is and he loves me God unlike human fathers always has the ability the knowledge and the love to always give us give his children what they need when they ask him Now, it still doesn't really solve the dilemma though, does it? So this good God who we've given assurance loves us, who's in absolute control, who knows all things, why then? How can it possibly be that some of the things that we are facing, this family that was asking for the life of their child, how could it possibly be a bad thing? Why didn't God answer? And that leads us to the second and the final reason that Jesus points to. First is that God's our father. He has the heart of a father, no less than human fathers. The second, though, is why we can trust that God will always give good gifts when his children ask him is that we're his children. A child needs a father to decide what is good for his child. When we were in Central America as missionaries, um, uh, there was this, we, we didn't have air conditioning uh, there, but it was very warm uh, in uh, Central America. And there was a particular room where we had an oscillating, uh, uh, oscillating fan that was set on the floor. 
and my daughter was one, uh, about a little over one uh, in those days, when we would let her in that room, uh, was very attracted to this fan. It was shiny and it gave, you know, a nice, a nice breeze. And so her and her very young mind and limited perspective and very limited experience thought, that is nice. I would like to touch that fan. And so she'd start walking over there and we're watching her like a hawk and we'll grab her and say, no, honey, you can't, you can't touch that. No, no. And we'd bring her back and she would sidle up over to it again and try to touch that fan. We'd say, no, honey, you can't do that. And she would do it again and we'd finally get it more stern and say, no, no, you can't. Don't touch that fan. And she would cry. And she would throw a fit. She didn't understand. From her perspective, that's a good gift. But for parents who had lived a few more years, the gap, the gap in perspective, the gap in experience, the gap in the knowledge, the gap in the appreciation of the consequences of those decisions was quite large. And so when we think about our Heavenly Father, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good? We got to remember we're children. If the gap between a one-year-old and a 30-year-old is pretty significant, what do you think the gap is between us and our Heavenly Father? God always knows what he's doing. We've got to remember that, that we, we don't, things don't always, things don't always appear as we, as we see them. We've got to come back to the fact that God is in control. He knows what I need. And he loves me. And he intends good things for me. I'd like us just to, as we, as we prepare for communion time, just to look at Romans 8 for just a, a second here. And Romans 8 just really per, pulls the curtain back a little bit more on, on the plan of God for his good for us. Verse 18, Romans 8, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so the context for God's good plan, his plan that he's working, takes in, it's a much broader context than oftentimes that we're thinking about or we're looking at, right? He's getting us ready for glory, for eternity, and he says that what's coming, that what we're going through right now can't even compare to what is coming. Second Corinthians 4 said that too, that this light and momentary affliction is working for us an exceedingly eternal weight of glory. He's got good in mind, but the context is he's thinking in terms of heaven, in terms of eternity. 
And back in, in verse uh, 15, he said, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So this God who is sovereign and is in control, the one that is portrayed in Job, where Job did, you know, you know the experience of Job. He wasn't understanding what was going on and he wanted to have an audience with God. And he felt that what was happening to him was unjust. And if he could just get before God and present his arguments for God, that, that God would have to say, oops, yep, you're right. You know, I, I, I missed that one, Job. We're going to have to get that right. And Job says, oh, if I could only find him. In Job 23, it says, I would fill my mouth with arguments. And if I could get this audience with the, the judge of the universe, and he would hear and he would have to say, I would be delivered forever, he would, he'd said, from my judge. But he says, but I look on the left hand and I can't find him. And I look on the right and I, 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 he's working, but I can't see him. He says, I can't find God. I can't, I can't make sense of this and I can't hear from God to understand why. But finally, he gets his wish. At the end, in Job 38 through 42, God appears. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and you answer me. And then God begins, presents his credentials for running the universe and, and beautiful poetic imagery there about laying the foundations of the earth. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? of the earth, he, he says, and Job, he says, I, I was speaking about things I knew nothing of. Things too wonderful for me. And he says, here, he repented in dust and ashes. God showed up for him. God made it clear to him that he knew what he was about. And it was enough for Job. But here, here, this God who who is so other in his perfection and in his control and in his wisdom and all of that, this other God has drawn near to us here. He gave us his spirit. We haven't received the sp spirit of slavery, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the, that familiar term. We're now in God's family. We can call him our daddy in, in, in that respect. We come to him in that way. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then notice, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering and glory, suffering and glory. Jesus went through his suffering, entered glory. He's the first fruits. And those who follow in his steps, suffering and glory. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then Paul paints this picture of how creation has been sub subjected to this suffering and groaning because of that sin that entered into the world, the world, this good world ruined by sin. And he pictures the groaning of all creation waiting. They're in this, this, this pains of childbirth, uh, Paul describes, waiting for this coming time when we're going to be revealed all that God intended. It's going to, it's going to happen. 
And so creation is groaning. God's children are groaning. He, he points that out as well. Not only the creation, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. This world, good world, ruined by sin, redeemed by the Son. We're waiting for that, the full redemption. But then the Spirit, verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This is that sovereign God who does all things mighty and, and Job could not question him. He's come near. He helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you been there? We, we are so, we, we're at a loss. And there are times where we don't have the answers. I, I cannot explain why that family, why God and his providence and his wisdom decided that was not a good gift. The spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, that mysterious perfect will of God. And then this great, wonderful bedrock verse that we all have to stand on, isn't it? Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What God's good plan for our ultimate good can be found right here. That what God is doing, what he is committed to do is your good, my ultimate good, and your ultimate good. And what is that? He is working, relentlessly working faithfully working, sometimes ruthlessly working to make you and me more like his son, Jesus. And he says that, that is the ultimate good. And one day it's going to be revealed. One day we're going to enter it. And all of creation's waiting for that when we're going to become not in deity, but in character and in, in, in all the glory that Jesus shares. We're going to be glorified that way. He's committed to it. That's his good. So Jesus says, what's on your heart? Are you going to the Father with it? Go, go ask. What is it? Bring it to him. Your need, your desires, your hopes, bring it to the Father. Keep bringing it to the Father. And your Father, who loves you immensely, who knows all things, has all power, all authority, and is committed to your good, your ultimate good, will always, always respond with what is good for you. And if we ask and we don't receive, we can take it to the bank that what we had asked at that time, timing or whatever it was, it wasn't a good gift for us. That's what we have to fall back on. So as we partake the communion uh, tonight, today, this morning, whatever time it is, 
Um, this sovereign God, who's in absolute control, we can find tremendous comfort in the fact that this sovereign God is a suffering God. That he entered into the fallenness of this world. This world is in judgment. It's subjected to futility and frustration. And this God entered into that in, the, in his son. And he drank to the dregs the suffering, the wrath that you and I deserve taking our place. So as we take the bread, we remember Jesus' broken body, broken for us. He took our place. Romans 8.28 says, or 8.30, that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Jesus shed his blood for you and me. And by that, Paul says, what can separate us from the love of Christ then? Can tribulation or death or nakedness or peril or sword? All of those things, he says, none of those things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's keep believing. Let's keep asking. Let's keep seeking. Let's keep knocking. He's faithful. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his coming. Thank you for his taking our place. Thank you for his being the first fruits of the resurrection. Thank you for the down payment of the Holy Spirit that's been given us, guaranteeing us the outcome. Thank you that the sufferings of this present time cannot be compared to the glory that's ahead. Help us to believe you. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.